You're listening to the Green Tech Podcast. In this podcast, we dive deep in the trends of horticulture with renowned experts. For more information, go to greentech.nl. Green Tech brings you to the heart of the horticulture industry. Good morning. My name is Maren Schoormans, and um, I'm in horticulture my whole life. I worked for leading companies like Priva, Corporate Biological Systems, and the Reuters Seeds. And right now, I'm an entrepreneur, and I help companies to change, improve, or, or scale. So glad to be here. Good morning. I'm Henry Gordon-Smith, founder and CEO of Agritecture Consulting. I am not a farmer. I grew up in big cities like Hong Kong, Tokyo, and Moscow, Russia. But I got interested in how cities could be drivers for sustainable and resilient agriculture and adapt to climate change. So what we do is we consult entrepreneurs, cities, governments, and multinationals all around the world on strategies to plan, design, and implement urban farms. Good morning. Thanks for inviting us. Uh, very interesting um, um, attempt to uh, zero in on, on topics we all care about. Name is Tom Zollner, Secretary General of Farm Tech Society. Uh, background a bit of uh, consulting from conventional feed crops, starting in potatoes in 2004. Uh, invented uh, with a Dutch company and bargaining in a model to identify uh, a uh, in infection period in potato production. At that time, nobody talked about AgTech. Uh, of course, it was not adapted and later on became a market standard. These days, I'm really spending a lot of time uh, trying to push uh, farm tech society uh, on behalf of our members. Glad to be here. Thank you, Tom and Henry. So, such an interesting topic, vertical farming, urban farming. It tends to overlap a little bit. But let's start with, with urban farming, Henry. Why urban farming? Can you explain a little bit about it? Well, urban agriculture is defined as the production of food within the city, but it also includes all of the various support services. So, for example, distribution solutions, even localization of food system markets, education programs, it all fit within the topic of urban agriculture. And urban agriculture typically also includes those kinds of edges of the city, what we call the peri-urban areas of the city, where there's kind of a mixture of the built environment and also vacant spaces and semi-agricultural spaces. And what we find globally is that overall, these spaces, including the areas in the center of the city, can be used for production of food from many different scales. Everything from market gardens that families may have in Asia to barter food to maintain their sustenance, all the way up to high-tech vertical farms and warehouses. So, you know, urban agriculture isn't anything new. In fact, I think it's kind of interesting that we're coming back to it. We're trying to restore food in the city because previously we never used to build the places we lived without the resources we needed to survive. But as we kind of advanced as societies in the developed world, we said, well, we can centralize that somewhere else and import it. And there's been consequences to that, which I imagine we'll get into, but some of them are a lack of transparency in the food system, increased food miles, food safety risks, uh, a disconnection from the labor and knowledge of how to grow food. And all of these have consequences that are becoming more apparent as climate change becomes more of a risk to our society. So the reason to encourage urban agriculture now is, is multifaceted, everything from solving those problems I just mentioned. But I think one of the major reasons for doing it is to really encourage adaptation to climate change by creating this new generation of individuals that live in an urban area where you have to kind of work within a dense environment, a very efficient environment, and solve these great challenges around food. So it creates a new generation of food security problem solvers. 
going back to the uh, the funding question, I'm also looking at, at Tom. Uh, Tom, you live uh, in Brussels. You work in Brussels. Uh, European uh, Union, European Community. So, what do you what do you think lacks in the at the policymakers to um, try and get this off the ground in Europe? Because in in the US, there's a lot more activity in this movement than we see here. Well, there's a you know this twofold this this challenge of uh, agriculture being recognized in the European Union as a kind of a deep knowledge, and you know there's no better example than going to the. The, uh, you know, to the, the Netherlands to re recognize that uh, you have brought uh, food production, particularly controlled environmental uh, agriculture. Like to horizontal really, farming. Yeah? Really, <laughs> well, it's horizontal, but also it's, it's, it's actually, you know, you know, when I look at, uh, at, at what is happening, it's, it's also increasing efficiency. Yeah? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the name of the game. That's why I really, when I, when I talk to policymakers, I, I always point out, uh, as one of the mantras uh, they should recognize is that any any farmer is in general a circular farmer, period. Because farmers have a difference to the hunter and gatherers and they are planning ahead. Uh, a hunter, which is close to what we happen with the fisheries today, these, they, these guys, they go out and catch the last fish. They, they just do it because that's all they know. They don't plan ahead. They don't plan, you know, how do we going to fish next year? No, they're going to go after the last fish. A farmer, by definition, will always take care of his turf and of his resources. And this is very fundamental that, uh, that this is actually creating really a good basis for looking forward in integrating knowledge from advanced systems like controlled environmental agriculture and also this new phenomenon of vertical farming or urban agriculture. I mean, you know, the complexity, of course, is lost uh, in the shuffle when people really are debating about what is better, how does it work, and a lot of conventional agriculture looks upon controlled environment agriculture as something of a competition. Well, in reality, I can tell you that uh, the demand for vegetables and fruit is going to have uh, is going to double in the next uh, oh, agree. Uh, agree. eight to nine yeah. years. I mean, this is a fact. Yeah. Our nutrition will change from a, a, a very carbon, a very um, uh, uh, carb, you carbohydrate and protein based into into a, a vegetable and fruit based one. And this is not just a fact in the new economies, but also in the old economies like Europe and and the US, etc. Of course, you know now my big topic at the day is how do we create a differentiation for right. a, a one head of lettuce grown in a vertical farm compared to it's grown in a field somewhere. Because consumers don't know about it. They oh, have no I mean, awareness they, they whatsoever. They walk into Albert Hain and, uh, you know, to them looks like it's a salad costs uh, 89 cents yeah. and they don't, they don't really have any idea was it grown in a vertical farm or was it grown somewhere in the field of uh, Flanders, whatever. And, and that is a big problem. Eh? Tom, Tom do, you th do you think that products should be labeled as CEA grown or vertical farm grown? Is that is? Well, I think label is maybe a, a very low hanging fruit, but labels tend to be also, you know, confusing. Yeah. And we have too many labels. Yeah. People are complaining about, you know, why, why aren't you get your, you know, you look at other industries who are actually very savvy about, you know, creating one, one level playing field for a certain product and have that differentiation really transformed into a, a purchase price. So, you know, we, we really look at fundamentally actually creating a kind of measuring system, a certification mm -hmm. system where you can actually differentiate and say like, here's a head of lettuce. It has a, a carbon uh, footprint of such, a, such a, right. a number and that should be communicated to the consumer. And that will justify also a consumer willingness 
to actually pay more for a salad who is actually grown with a, with a smaller uh, carbon footprint. It's proven over and over again that actually consumers are willing to pay more if they have the information and they believe in it. It's now, true. you know, this is, of course, now uh, in my, let's say, memory, uh, a topic particularly also Mara and I have discussed mm. for years now, yeah. uh, you know, seed companies, uh, you know, the, the greenhouse sector, all the growers are complaining about, you know, why are we not recognized for what we're doing? And now comes the new the new uh, uh, form of our, uh, agriculture, vertical farming, which is not recognized by regulation as a, as a, as a form in itself, uh, needs to be really defined. So this is the moment really to bring this forward. And luckily, luckily we have the open air of retailers who really want to actually also do that or have to do that. Uh, regulators need to be informed about that. And that I see is, is a bit of a disconnect even Conventional growers here in uh, in the Netherlands who are really well organized uh, when it comes down to or, you know doing a lot of things efficiently, but they're very inefficient on getting the policymakers to understand the actual needs yeah. and the actual uh, challenges they face. Uh, exactly. You mentioned retailers, Tom. So uh, have they changed over the past years in their willingness to do something else than just conventional and organic? They haven't, but recently they started to understand that there is a big need for uh, creating a kind of a sustainable product line. They have to, uh, they have to come to the conclusion that really, uh, also from their own basis of really improving their footprint, mm -hmm. that they have to actually use a carbon counter in all their product uh, uh, categories. And they realize that bio is not giving them the sustainability they were hoping for. And this is, of course, controversial, and I'm not going to dwell on this, but you know, this is the chance and the opportunity of controlled environment agriculture to point out that, you know, please test our product, mm. make it an independent evaluation, what is our carbon footprint, and, and bring it out to the consumer and let him know what this is. Great. I suppose that's a good message towards all the greenhouse growers in Europe that are trying to, to get added value uh, in, into their product. I just want to comment on the retailers thing. I, I think it is shifting, especially in the past two years, we're seeing a big shift for the retailers to recognize controlled environment agriculture and vertical farming specifically as a solution. The main solutions that it, it responds to for retailers are the following. One, consumers want local food. That's what's competing with organic, especially in the United States and even more in Europe. So the data is suggesting that consumers will pay more for local food. These vertical farms, greenhouses can provide that local food and that label is con convincing to the consumer. Secondly, it's food safety. We've had the third food safety scare with romaine lettuce in the United States in a year. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, literally the, the, the controlled, the, the center for disease control is saying, do not eat romaine. If it's grown outdoors, throw it out of your fridge. But if it's grown in a greenhouse, keep it. Retailers are paying attention to that, right? They're saying, okay, I see that. I want to get my supply chain to be more CEA focused. And there are deals happening. Maybe you don't see them as much in the public. There are big deals happening with greenhouse companies in the United States. There are big deals happening with vertical farming companies in Europe and in Asia. We just saw that Carrefour in the Middle East just announced that they're introducing a vertical farm in their store there. InFarm has over 200 installations in retail stores. Yeah. I got to visit one of those, and I was pretty skeptical about InFarm, but when I visited it, it was interesting to hear what the consumers, I talked to some German um, consumers there at the store. But mainly in Germany, right? 
Yeah, well, they're mainly in Germany, but they've expanded to Denmark, France, the United Kingdom. They just announced that they they expanded to the United States and are installing in Seattle with Kroger, the second largest retailer wow. in the United States. So they really are growing, you know, very rapidly, and and this model has convinced retailers to give it a try. Yeah. We'll see how it works long term, but they're giving it a try. And so when I talked to these, um, you know, I was in Frankfurt and I was talking to some of these retailers or the, these customers rather. I said, you know, why why do you care about this, right? And they said different things. One was, I really like that I can talk to someone because there's kind of an indoor farming display and, and then the herbs are displayed there. I like that I can talk to somebody about the product and they know how it's grow. They know where it came from. They can answer my questions. I also like that they talk to me about recipes that I can make with it because they have many different varieties of, of basil, not just one variety. So the same grower can keep give you a variety of things to cook with. The grower is actually there in the store. Well, the peop- there's basically like laborers that bring the product from a hub and that moves into the central store right. unit. And so they can talk about where it came from and how it was grown, and they can show you how it's growing now. Okay. But they can talk to you about the varieties of basil. And sometimes when you get the, the product basil from Morocco, you get one variety. But the most interesting thing I heard was they like that it was smaller. Consumers are beginning to care about food waste. And a lot of the conventional product is too big. And so when you cook with it, when you're a single person or a millennial, you don't need a gigantic thing of basil. You're going to waste it. So when they buy a smaller one, the margin is actually better for InFarm and the retailer. But the consumer is also happy because they're just getting the amount they need. So I think the ability for these urban growers to respond to those trends and work with retailers is quite unique. And that's the competitive edge that retailers are excited about. You know, you mentioned this uh, really uh, interesting new model. We're, we're, you know, skeptically looking at it. it. Is of course it's a vending machine in a in a retail environment producing a sort of fresh produce, which you know when I heard it for the first time, I thought like, well, that's a great joke, but it won't work, because you know consumers will basically be up in arms. They're like, you know, why should we eat a salad coming out of like a, 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 a machine? A machine with pink lights, and yeah. you know. Surprisingly, of course, there are consumers who actually find that super cool and actually are trying it and then returning and wanting only that particular product because they say the superiority in freshness, in taste, in flavor is uncompared to all the rest of conventionally or greenhouse grown uh, uh, herbs and, and absolutely. And this is a, a really great door opener for this 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 type of uh, product. Absolutely. And if you look at the data around millennials and the generation after me, you know, they're craving experiences. They don't just want to buy a product. They want to connect with the brand and the product in a deeper way. That's that's new. That's not something that existed before. Yeah. If you look at Airbnb, they've just launched more of their cooking classes experiences. And that's a big, big signal of how food is connecting to what they see around the data of how millennials are going to purchase and the brands are going to associate themselves with. And Airbnb has its own local food procurement strategy. This is going to spread one by one through corporations, retailers, large convention centers. It's going to become more of the norm. And it's really been interesting to see that shift. And I think it's driven by the demographic trends as well. That's really interesting. So I heard you say in a previous uh, presentation, I believe it was Australia, very good one, by the way. Oh, I can recommend you. it to people, that there will be two groups of professionals in the industry. Uh, on one hand, it will be uh, the, um, the technology companies. And on the other hand, the operators. Who will be those operators? Can you elaborate a little bit on that? 
Yeah, I, I'll elaborate on that that statement. I think what I was trying to emphasize is that a lot of people entering the vertical farming space cannot decide if they're an operator or a technology company. So it's, it's pretty common that someone will build a vertical farm and discover some innovation. Maybe they have an automated rack, maybe they have an automated seeding system, maybe they thought the, the solution that was off the shelf was too expensive, yeah. so they hacked it, and they're like, oh, we can make money off selling this now. But that distracts them from the core business of farming that's very difficult and very day-to-day -day operations focused. So I see a lot of my clients, a lot of people in the industry struggle with this divide. And we actually have a, an article published that Urban Crops wrote, are you a technology company or an operator? You have to decide on our blogs. You can read about it. But I think just to go a little bit deeper, if we think about the industry of vertical farming, the foundation has to be the operators. Then above that is the hardware providers. Then above that is the software providers. And then above that is the service providers, or maybe you could say even nonprofit organizations like FarmTech Society. If that foundation of that pyramid is not the largest piece, the industry will really struggle to scale. The industry will struggle to succeed because we all depend on the farmers having successful models, successful ability to grow and sell these products. Right now, I think the hardware area is a little too big. I think, it's, I think it's bigger than the foundation in a lot of ways. That's where we're seeing, when you see the reports on how big the vertical farming industry is, a lot of that is the size of the LED companies and the sales that they're making. So we need to really shift that. And I think the, the key there is the best practices around it. And that's why I was really interested in what you're talking about with how do you teach growers you know, introductory best practices, yeah. how you teach them to use CEA. You know, Priva, I got to uh, demo their Priva Academy yesterday. These are the things that are going to really transform the industry because we're, we're most of the operators, as you saw from the, the CEA census we did with AutoGrow, are new. It's their first time. They've never done it before. Yeah, They've like never farmed 60 before. 60% of them yeah. is new to the industry. So are they going to go to school and take a four-year horticulture degree and then do two years of operating greenhouse? Probably not. We need technological solutions, modern education solutions yeah. for them to learn faster. And you know, with CEA, I think you can learn faster. It's, it's, in some ways, it's easier to learn than other types of agriculture. So, so that's what's going to transform that and help the operators have the operational best practices that I see most often are missing across the board and are most often the reason why these farms fail long term is because they get too focused on the equipment or they get too focused on their brand and, and the cool factor. But they really miss the fact that farming is hard and it requires consistent daily habits to keep pests out, to keep the food safe, to keep the leaks from, from happening, yeah. to keep everything in production and efficient all the time. And that's the bottom line. I agree. It's, it's actually the same as in any type of farming or horticulture. You need that hands-on training to make people uh, known uh, with, uh, with the equipment and, uh, and, and the marketing and every aspect of uh, their business. Um, we're looking may, at technology. May, may I lean into this? Oh, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Just quick, uh, you know, earning a living from growing food is a very challenging occupation, and it has been not very popular. I mean, as we all see that farmers are kind of like, you know, an average what, 60, 70 mm -hmm. years old. Uh, and, and of course, the interesting part is as we have young people coming via technology into this, uh, into, into this uh, industry, which is really exciting. Uh, and I think this is the purpose, what we actually need to put technology before we actually know how to use it. And this has worked in other industries, by the way, too. And, and we always think, oh, we can fix it with technology. Well, it's not so simple. We will also have the pioneer factor we get killed and the settlers get rich. However, you know, the actual fact is that also tinkering with technology will 
create a very interesting learning environment. And as I see it now, and we are really pushing a very interesting initiative with Erasmus+, Plus, where we actually see uh, controlled environment agriculture as a STEM education model. Yeah. Whether it is for middle school, you can even start a kindergarten if you want. Mm -hmm. If you have a tabletop lap and you can do tinker. Uh, They're available, by the way. Yes, they are. They're available very easily. Yeah. Uh, very inexpensive, too. Yeah. Uh, up all the way to PhDs, uh, you know, you can bring in a, a, a kind of a, a life system, which is an applied method to do actual uh, scientific experiments and compare comparative scientific applied experiments, entrepreneurial training. I mean, this is how, what better thing could be to train a student to be an entrepreneur on a food model, because that is really tough, right? Then uh, also interesting is that you have the engineering aspect in it. Uh, you have, of course, uh, also uh, to a certain degree, the math, you know, I mean, even applied math. You know, today people are struggling in education how to apply math. Or physics. Or physics. I mean, this is all in there. And so it really is now on the brink of being discovered as that is actually a very cool way of training people. And I'm talking about not just creating researchers, because, huh? mm. you know, there are plenty of agriculture-oriented horticulture courses which provide plenty of uh, candidates for research, but what we need is actually operators. Huh? And there it is. And there where we want to actually really make a big point that if we don't solve that educational challenge, uh, we don't even need to talk to policymakers because then <laughs> nothing will happen really uh, at the end of the day. Absolutely. So very I'm big, try big to convince, pillar, huh? convince yes. my, my daughters to, uh, to go for a career in horticulture. I know how hard it is, you know, but it's like these initiatives and, and right. the coolest parts of, of the spectrum that really attract these people. And we have to talk to education institutions as well. Absolutely. Exactly. And, you know, in the supply chain, we have lots of different professions engaged. Right? It doesn't necessarily mean that you need to be an operator at the end of the oh, day. Yeah, absolutely. But if you have an exposure in your education to horticulture or to yeah. uh, controlled environment agriculture, I mean, if you add, for instance, aquaponics, which is an absolutely beautiful model to bring almost everything you can possibly think into education and then ultimately have people go into career paths which have a meaning and are actually also graduating and then get a job. I mean, this is another big thing that education is failing today, uh, particularly when I look at the US. I mean, holy shit. I mean, what is the actual student debt right now? I think it's over a trillion US dollars. It's the biggest single debt source right. in the United States. I mean, this is insane. Eh? And and here in Europe, they are thinking well, we, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't do the same thing. <laughs> but the, I, yeah. I look at the university and they do the same mistakes. Huh? So. I just want to add some some more um, accent to, to what, what, what Tom said. So, you know, Square Roots, which was uh, Kimball Musk, Elon Musk's brother, hired us to develop this vertical farming accelerator. And I was quite skeptical, but I knew there was energy around the topic through our blog. And what was really, really fascinating is that when we opened up this application for 10 containers, that each entrepreneur would get one container, we had 480 individuals apply for this program. It was an unpaid program. They had to commit to one year. They had to take out a $1,500 USDA loan, so they had to take on financial risk. And 480 individuals decided that they wanted to do this program and apply to learn vertical farming. And I thought that was really, really interesting. I interviewed 70 of them got to learn about their psyche until we, cho we chose the, the, the final 10. And what was really even more interesting is that as they went through this process, they were exposed to things that Tom was talking about, the relationship between food, energy, water, and waste. And when we're talking about the great challenges of urban development, th that's what we need to unlock. And so I invite anyone listening to think about what is an urban technology, a, a sustainable technology that embraces that nexus better than vertical farming. 
Nothing does. There is not one single technology that does that more. Solar panels take one part of it, biodigesters another part of it, but vertical farming has to embrace all of that. Yeah. And as we start moving towards the solutions for the economical models for this, we're gonna unlock new things about how the city can be more sustainable and resilient. I also wanna add that some of these farmers when they graduated, who had no farming experience before, decided to go into organic soil-based agriculture outside of the city. And so they did apprenticeships and they went deeper into the agricultural system separate from hydroponics and vertical farming, which I also find very fascinating. Mm -hmm. Some of them went towards retail, some of them went in other sustainability directions. So the power of actually giving young people access to this technology to explore it is, is really underestimated and has a lot of potential. I'm gonna add a little bit more, you, you will see if you keep it, but um, I'm a board member at Teens for Food Justice, which is a nonprofit organization that converts unused spaces and classrooms in very, very uh, marginalized communities, at-risk communities in, in New York City. What we do is we convert them into vertical farms. We teach the students how to build the farms, how to manage the farms, and then they sell the product to their students in the cafeteria. They distribute it. Um, they also have a food box that's kind of like a CSA model where they can sell it to their families and, and other people. And what we're seeing is test scores are going up. We're seeing the questions they're asking are getting more sophisticated. Confidence is going up. Math skills are going up. And the data is really compelling, which is why the organization is able to raise so much more money and is planning to develop 100 of these throughout New York City. So it's, it's, it's not just a, a, a great idea like, hey, let's, let's grow food and have students learn this. There's actual data that's showing that it's making an impact and transforming both their food security and their overall knowledge and intelligence. That's really interesting. So who's funding this? Because I, I get every experience here in Europe that is hard to have a, a, educational institutions to, uh, to put money aside to do this. They don't have any. So how do you Well, I think, I think if you look at traditional education, there's not a lot of funding going into it in the US. We're trying to shift that. Um, you know, Cornell, UC Davis, University of Arizona, these are org institutions that already have a rich history in this. Yeah. Canada is putting a lot of money into it, trying to advance their agricultural programs to be competitive. Um, but I'm, I'm really talking about unconventional education programs like Square Roots, was uh, like Teams for Food Justice, uh, New York Sunworks is another one, um, like these, these programs that are online and available. You know, Agriculture is launching some online business planning classes for urban agriculture next year. So these are the unconventional ones that are going to you know, accelerate this topic and, and again, Im improve the number of operators that are able to succeed in the long term. Exactly. So... It, it makes a lot of sense to uh, to get young people acquainted to technology, to growing plants, to get that awareness. But if we skip down to the professional level, there's a lot of technology, right? There's a lot of things for sale. We've seen it at GreenTech Amsterdam. You can buy lots of different versions of each technology, which, which calls for standardization, I guess. Because... As a starting entrepreneur ah. in vertical farming, <laughs> I wouldn't know where to start. Which how, which LED do I take? Which how, how long have we been talking about standardization, Tom? I think it's been six, maybe maybe eight years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It started actually when I did this potato model. <laughs> Don't stop the, doing uh, that. Yeah. yeah, no, no. I mean, it's actually coming to a, a really interesting head too. And you know, as you are, you know, in your career, you have come across, of course a great number of companies who contributed a lot to optimizing to if yeah. increase efficiencies but you know when i when i really look at uh, how successful for instance the greenhouse uh, builders are actually standardized their systems to make it an actual you know plug and play uh, i i 
I always thought that that could be a model for us. But you, I see you shaking your head. Do you have any any well, you know, reservations there's been, there's about been, that? There's <sighs> been pleas for standardization in the greenhouse uh, building business for a long time. Yes. However, uh, the customers, they keep demanding tweaks, changes, different varieties okay. of those things. So you end up with 100,000 different uh, setups and configurations, you know, which each require their own knowledge and skills to get them going. So... Uh, one, one size fits none, huh? so that's right. <laughs> yeah, as I said earlier. <laughs> so once, in vertical one size farming, which is a young, okay. which is a very young industry, yeah. you so can make me, a new start. Let yeah, me yeah. answer the question. Yeah. Okay. So you know, uh, I, I'm the co-founder of the Association for Vertical Farming, which was you know prior to FarmTech Society, and I resigned from that position um, in summer of 2017. But we were trying to standardize, and we were trying to get the technology companies to work together to do this. Now, what I realized was that the entrepreneurs, they, they needed a methodology. They didn't just need standardization. They need to know how to think critically about these decisions before they could even look at a database of standards, right? So that's what Agritecture started doing. And we actually did it originally through the AVF, through these workshops, where we would get entrepreneurs together, architects, all these people interested, and we would choose a site and we would design a farm for that site and help show them the differences between soil, greenhouse and vertical to get to those conclusions. When you arm people with these methodologies, they have the power to go to green tech and recognize what they need because they can think critically about it, right? If you're more informed about the types of cars that are there and how you might choose that, if somebody teaches you that, you're gonna be better when you go and shop and choose a car. The same thing applies here. So I think it's about arming them with methodologies. Now, unfortunately, when I was communicating this at one of the annual meetings, some of the AVF members, including large lighting companies, um, said, why are you talking about soil-based urban agriculture to our members, to our, to, to our community? You need to, to only talk about vertical farming. And that's when I realized that my values did not align with the organization and I had to resign. And so what Agritecture has been doing since then is we've been teaching our clients through creating matrices for how they can choose equipment, step-by-step um, -step methodologies that makes them no longer need us after we first consult them. And that's what we're arming them with. Long-term and coming up next year, we're gonna be launching a digital service, a digital farm planning software, where entrepreneurs anywhere can learn this methodology and help make the decisions to plan their farm online in a very inexpensive way. And that's gonna accelerate the industry further because I think we need to arm the entrepreneurs with the most critical methodology possible so they can be good observers of the trends, see through the bullshit, and actually know where they should spend their money appropriately so they don't waste it and end up with failed farms. That makes sense. How do you see that, Tom? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the, the, I mean, the fact is, it's a stony road. I mean, yeah. we all have chosen uh, chosen to to uh, actually engage with topics which can be very controversial. Huh? However, I think you know the 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 interesting part is that after years of um, you know kind of like optimizing and creating better efficiencies, all of a sudden we experience a disruption. And the disruption is coming from, let's say, introducing daylight independent growing as a kind of like a complete new way of looking at how we do things. Huh? And there, of course, the lighting companies have been up in arms about, you know, should we do this? Should we not do this? And it's an interesting discourse and it's settling down a little bit. I mean, you know, things are flying, but, you know, aren't we really interested, all of them, uh, including, you know, market 
you know, leaders to create a, a very interesting uh, manufacturing standard, a measuring standard mm -hmm. on, on all these new types of technologies, because that will empower the industry as a whole, create a level playing field for not only the operators, but also for the, for the uh, uh, market leaders. Huh? And that is, of course, recognized. I mean, you know, of course, you know, it is not so easy to, f to, to file these discussions. And, you know, we're, we're now really also uh, engaging in earnest to, to sit down and create not just the lowest common denominator on topics like how do you measure this or how you do that, but, you know, bring in sort of really bright ideas and then discuss them and see how could we, I, I think, you know, the, the example I brought with the greenhouse, uh, you know, suppliers creating a standardized system to have a plug and play, which obviously also is not one fits, fits all. At least it allowed the whole uh, industry to actually go global. Huh? Yeah. You have to not forget that. And without that, I think, you know, let, yes, you can build a lot of different systems and there's a lot of tweaks and this and that. But uh, it, it, certain parameters need to be really identified as, as a kind of a common denominator. Yeah. And then you can go beyond or below or in the medium. Huh? Excellent. Right now, that I see is, yeah. is happening. We are getting really good feedback on that. So listening, listening, many, to, many stakeholders, listening right? to this, Tom, and, and looking at um, where I come from, the Dutch uh, technology uh, sector, um, we just saw the, uh, the annual list of the top 100 companies called Hill and Rat 100, uh, where all the best companies are listed and explained uh, about their qualities. And when I read that, only five of these 100 companies are listed because they have some activity or awareness or attention into vertical farming. So are we missing the train in the Netherlands? Can you both... Uh, try and answer this? I mean, I think the Dutch approach to agriculture is both aggressive and conservative. And I think that that's a good thing. And I think that in contrast, the U.S. approach has been very fail fast and that has its own value. Mm. But I, I think that the Dutch have actually done it the right way. I think that they've been skeptical. I think that they've been good observers. And I think we've seen that green tech has started to approach this in their exhibitions of allowing a voice for vertical farming, which is now creating this discussion in the Netherlands even more actively. Yeah. The Dutch see the economic opportunity, so the lighting companies are getting involved very actively, but they're being very selective about the kinds of products they provide and the price point for those. So I actually, I actually have a lot of faith in the Dutch solution to vertical farming Good. in the long term. Yeah. Tom? Well, you know, nationally speaking, the Dutch are very proud of themselves, and they should be. Internationally speaking, they're also very proud, and they also contribute to quite, uh, quite uh, a, a lot of um, um, uh, contributions, which are really valuable. Um, when it comes down to new disruptive technology, which is not really homegrown, then they tend to actually feel critical about it. And that's also a kind of a normal, I'd say, grower behavior. I mean, as way of dealing, farmers uh, are you know, first critical, and then they like to see it work. And if it does work, then they, they open up to it. And this is, uh, of course, as you said, you know, a, a aggressive at the same time, a conservative approach. I would add to the fact, too, that, you know, what is currently uh, a horizontal underclass model works very well. No need to really uh, disrupt that. Or do we? I mean, I'm asking you. I mean, you know, the demand for what? 5,000 hectares every day, uh, every year. Uh, what, who, you know, who's going to build that? Is it going to be really the existing industry is capable of doing it? Because the demand for underglass horizontal production is enormous, and the demand for even more efficient systems uh, in, 
you know, climate uh, situations where glass houses don't make oh, no absolutely, sense absolutely. Is, is, is just gargantuan. Oh, and, absolutely. And is it going to be car companies who are going to build those? I don't know, or but, is it, but is new, players, new players are going to enter the arena, that's for sure. And uh, the existing ones are going to try to add the most value by having the, uh, let's say, the exceptional technologies mm -hmm. uh, and, and uh, the turnkey solutions that help people get started and get a profit uh, more rapidly. Um, and I think we need the whole spectrum going from simple plastic tunnels towards yeah. high tunnels, uh, high-tech uh, glass houses, semi-closed greenhouses, up to the, uh, the vertical farm without daylight. So uh, I'm very excited to see what the mix is going to be. I think it depends on, on the market and, uh, and, the, and the, fina the financiers that are, that are available and the market prices for the products that are generated. Second to that, um, I think that for the time being, Fruity crops like tomatoes, cucumbers, peppers, eggplants. Um, well, at this at this moment, the best place to grow them is in the greenhouse. Absolutely. As these vertical farms, they're very good for leafy greens, uh, for herbs, microgreens, and those kind of things. Um, so I'm also uh, wondering when are we going to see new crops besides the leafy crops in those vertical farms, Henry? Yeah, this is a, always the hot question: vertical farming, right? Um, so you know, I think. We're starting to see some companies like 80 Acres grow uh, tomatoes in fully enclosed, no daylight environments. The, I think the ways they're able to do that effectively is because under the 80 Acres brand, they can sell a whole variety of products. You can buy the lettuce, the microgreens, the herbs. You can also buy the tomatoes. Yeah. So I think that they can adjust pricing to get a customer that's buying their whole brand that can make sense, similar to if you buy a basket of product versus buying one product within that basket. So there are models for that. I don't know if that's going to work everywhere. I actually don't think so. But when we work on a lot of vertical farming models in the Middle East, we see that cherry tomatoes can be quite competitive in vertical farms in these extreme climates. So there'll be certain parts of the world where we'll see vine crops of certain kinds um, be, be the, some of the next products. Strawberries are, of course, Berries, being explored yeah. by many, many companies right now. Uh, I think the challenge is that as you get a new crop in vertical farming, you have to start over again with the automation solutions to maintain low labor costs. So once we figured out how to reduce the labor cost, which is such a significant operational cost around lettuce and microgreens and herbs, now we've got strawberries that work technically, but we have to now do the labor challenge for that. So there's always going to be new challenges as we enter new crop categories. But I think in the next five years, we'll start to see more strawberries grown in vertical farms on the shelves in certain markets where the price of that product is much more expensive. I'm also optimistic about the role of breeding in the context of vertical farming. And I think we don't talk enough about that. I was recently um, at the University of Guelph, which is Canada's top agricultural university. And I was meeting with a researcher there that's breeding for space um, travel. And what he was able to do is he was able to breed a plum tree that fruits consistently year round and actually grows more like a tomato. And this is actually a really important product for the biosystems uh, for space travel. But he was able to show me it and how small and dense it is. And actually I think it could be feasible to grow different kinds of fruit trees in the future in vertical farms, as long as they are bred in a way that's different uh, from the typical tree right now. So I think these different scientific disciplines will start to combine and, and fit in with vertical farming and the varieties will get more compelling. I don't think we're gonna have avocados in the future. Um, I don't think we're gonna have, um, I mean, 
maybe walnuts. Kind of, yeah, walnuts. But again, you know, it's it's going to be a combination of the climate drivers that make the externalities of water and infrastructure for traditional agriculture too expensive, the technology improvements around environment control, and also the breeding. When these things start to merge more, uh, we're going to start to see some really interesting products come out of these farms. Do you think the breeding industry is, uh, is picking up speed? I don't think they're, they're, I don't think, I, you know, I think not. When it comes you know, to this. <clears throat> it's too small of a market for them right now. Yeah. I, I think they're, we're seeing more of them um, engage in it. You know, KeyGen is, is one company that's really looking at this. Uh, I think that a lot of the seeding companies and the big ones are looking at this. They're just investing very small relative amounts to it. But, but that will increase over time. Exactly. So how do you feel about genetic engineering as a tool to speed that up? Do you think that consumers... Um, let me ask you about the other side of the ocean, about North America, are going to accept this when it gives, gives them the benefit? I think in, in North America, most consumers are not uh, concerned about genetically engineered product. There are some very vocal consumers that do care about it and some retailers and growers that are going to emphasize that they're GMO-free. But, but I think that um, in Europe, the, the context is, is very different. I think it'll be more, more difficult in Europe. Again, I think it really depends on how bad the drivers of that climate category I mentioned are going to be. If the drivers are so significant, um, governments and institutions are going to have to accelerate the use of GMO to respond to food scarcity issues. Yeah. And, and I don't want that scenario to happen necessarily because I, I wish that climate change would be something we could mitigate. Um, but as an adaptation strategy, GMOs will be part of that. Yeah. You know, we're, we're engaging in a very interesting moment of time, I believe. I mean, you know, really interesting is also to discuss what's going to work uh, a possible, you know, breeding is going to be key yeah. for uh, unlocking also the potential of vertical farming and a lot of, lot of varieties. I mean, this is something I hear from, from actual seed companies. Huh? They say that. And, you know, when I remember being at Vertifarm in Wageningen University a few weeks ago where there was a, a scientist named Bruce Buckby, remember that name, from Utah University, who actually was a, you know, he was kind of like a little Einstein uh, on stage and he was writing down the equation of how he actually thinks that we can increase the equation from photon to grams mm. of carbon. And because we all assume as farmers or as operators or whatever uh, that is, is one to one. Eh? One photon makes one gram. That, uh, you can't change that. Mm -hmm. And he actually demonstrated that, yeah, you can increase that. It is possible. Hmm. And that was an amazing uh, eye opener for me personally because I never really fully understood the power of replacing uh, a light source for a plant need. And it's kind of, we have it there for free, and it kind of the plant adapts to it. And there's limitations within that. But if you are really giving the plant the light it really loves and really wants, and you can do that with artificial lighting uh, today, then you're entering a completely uncharted t new territory. Yeah? And that is going to be seriously, seriously interesting. And we're, we're going to see very short in the short term and also, of course, in the long term varieties we never thought would be possible to be raised in complete uh, controlled environment agriculture. However, you know, we need to be aware the target is 2030, 4.8 trillion is the annual consumption of fruit and vegetables. Huh? Today, it's 2.2 trillion. Huh? So we need to really increase production, double, basically everywhere. Mm -hmm. So I can just sell, tell a, a grower uh, you know, who has 40 hectares, uh, you know, say, you need to double. How are you going to do that? And he's going to look at me, he's like, you're crazy. Mm -hmm. How can I double? I mean, I'm already you know, at the brink of my entire 
you know, land I own, I can't rent anymore. It's just, uh, mm. where do I you go? You have to go towards some kind of controlled so environment. So we need, we need to, to actually really create yeah. a higher efficiency per square meter. And this is the future, of course. You know, uh, as I see, hesitation is overcome by conviction when you see how it works. And then, yeah. bingo, it yeah. will work. So 4.8 trillion. Remember, this, uh, this is more money than people spend on military worldwide. Huh? So this is a great That's number. Fruit and vegetables. Good news yeah. for the industry. Let's ramp up the capacity. Yeah. Yeah. That's why we have an annual show to put the spotlights on uh, the current status of, uh, of the world of horticulture and adjacent uh, uh, industries that, uh, that are really putting a synergy towards uh, it. And we'll all be there and we hope to see yeah. you there too. Yeah, it will be in Amsterdam. 8 to 10 June next year. My birthday. So, oh, Don't miss your birthday. Place to be. <laughs> yeah, so to all the so listeners, there will be free uh, cake from, uh, from Henry. That, that, that's I a expect hint. a that's whole a pavilion <laughs> just for my birthday. Okay, <laughs> just kidding. But. So after listening and talking to you guys about, uh, about the industry and uh, where it's heading to, I'm even more motivated to, uh, to continue developing the knowledge and training young people to become growers and greenhouse managers. Thank you. Yeah, if, if, if there are challenges in, in uh, anybody's business, and there are always, uh, then uh, think about you know, certain uh, common uh, solutions which can be developed. And that is the purpose to get in touch with FarmTech Society. And you can join us for 150 euros. It's very inexpensive. Uh, you can also participate for a higher fee to be a part of a voting member. Uh, we're partnering with GreenTech because we believe that collaborative, uh, effective work uh, is going to make a difference for the industry. And I've, I'll, I'm, you know, this is very obvious every day. <clears throat> yeah, thanks so much for having me on this podcast. I really enjoyed it. You can learn more about Agritecture at agritecture.com. And if you're interested in the farm design software I mentioned, you can sign up at agritecture.com slash designer. Fantastic. Thank you guys <laughs> very much. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thanks, him. Thanks,